Good afternoon, Christine. It's great to see you and thanks so much for joining me on the Speak Up podcast today. You've been in leadership roles in both executive and non-executive capacities for the best part of 15 years now. So can you describe your journey from a young girl born and bred in Mumbai, India, to gracing the boardrooms of some of Australia's best-known companies? Firstly, thank you so much for having me. I'm feel, I feel very privileged to be part of this, so I look forward to our discussion. My journey began 51-some years ago in Mumbai. I was born in a suburb of Mumbai called Kolaba to a wonderful parents who were very traditional but also quite progressive in many ways. And so I went to school, a, a Catholic convent school, and as I was leading up to year 12, I declared to my parents that, you know, I wanted to explore the world and not go to university straight away. So, Ed, you can imagine uh, an Indian girl age 16 declaring that to her family didn't necessarily go down that well. But to my parents' credit, you know, they made it happen. Mum felt very strongly that we all had to get out of our comfort zone. Very early on, she talked about courage before comfort was kind of a phrase she talked about is effectively, you know, your our ability to thrive in uncomfortable situations. And so she knew how, how different and radical that decision was for me. And whilst it broke their heart, I think, you know, the eldest child sort of turning the back on a traditional Indian sort of life, they made it happen. And I think the only reason I was allowed to go to Australia really was my father was obsessed with cricket and he absolutely adored the Australian cricket team. And at the time, the Australian Prime Minister wore shorts and drank beer. So, you know, he thought it was a pretty pretty special place to go. It couldn't be that bad. And with that, they paid for my ticket and, and gave me some money to kind of explore that year of my life. And so... Therein began my journey. You know, one of my first big gambles of my life was taking that trip to Australia and backpacking and, and having this wonderful experience. And I remember sort of when I eventually landed in Sydney after some of my travels, I was quite hungry to explore further. And unfortunately, Ed, I ran out of money. So I came to Sydney with about $176 in my pocket found a bed in the youth hostel in Coogee at the time and I'd never worked in my life. You know, I needed a job and I thought, what am I going to do? And I finally got an interview with McDonald's at Broadway and I was so excited, Ed. I was like, oh, my God, finally I'm going to get a job. And when I got there, I realised it was like $5 something an hour and that my first job was going to be cleaning toilets and the, and the common areas. I just thought, okay, you know, I'll do what I have to do. But I think it was day two when I finished a shift. I went into a phone booth and I rang my mum and I just burst into tears. And I said, can you believe it? I'm cleaning toilets and, you know, I just can't cope. What am I doing? This is terrible. I'm so embarrassed. You know, it's such a menial task. Like I, I, you know, I was just rambling, thinking that mum would feel sorry for me and say, oh, you poor thing, okay, I'll get dad to send you some money or something like that. But instead, there was kind of this silence on the phone. And then she said, you've got an attitude problem. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. No job is menial. No job is below anybody, certainly not below you. And she said, you can't afford to be picky about anything right now. She said, every job has the capacity to be meaningful. And she said, you go out there 
and you clean those toilets and those floors like you would want to see them in a public facility. And whilst at that moment I intensely disliked my mother, when I did stop and think about it, it was a light bulb moment. It was an inflection point. It completely changed my mindset. It was one of those moments where I thought, this is somebody I have admired and looked up to all my life. And she's telling me that I have got a superiority complex and that I, I, I need to get over it. And she was right. So the next day I went to the shift and I was kind of like a different person because I thought I need to get out of this. And if I'm going to get out of this, I need to prove that I can do this really well. And I put my heart and soul into it and cleaned those floors and told us like that they were the cleanest I think they've ever been. And within three weeks, I was shifted to cleaning dishes. And I can't tell you that was one of the happiest days of my life. I guess for me, it was one of the biggest lessons of my life. And it gave me a very different attitude about what work means and how what you do in everything that you do can actually set you up for opportunities you can't even think about. So whilst I was at McDonald's, I went back to the newspapers and again started looking for additional on top of my McDonald's job. And I found this role, it said Office Junior, and that was a company that was, you know, stationary, office consumables, IT, computers, systems integration, like it had different areas and products that it supplied. And I started as an Office Junior. I was given a room full of boxes and basically told, Apparently, a few people had tried to do that. It was such a horrible, menial task that people didn't last very long. So I ended up finishing all the boxes. They then said, oh, do you want to go into accounts and help do receivables and then payable? And then uh, I went into telesales and telesales account. So I'm just giving you a truncated version, Ed, of a journey that began in that company for, as an office junior. And I finished off 11 years and ended up being the sales director, and they gave me amazing opportunities, and I fell in love with the country that was only going to be a one-year love affair turned into this wonderful adventure. So I ended up staying there for 11 years, and during that time, I also commenced my university degree. So, you know, my I went straight to a master's, and uh, during that time, I also met my future husband, through a mutual friend, and he was really one of those pivotal moments in my life where he said, you know, it was time for me to explore new opportunities, and I also wanted to have children. So there was a few things kind of that ramped up to the end of that first chapter of my journey in Australia. And so I got married. Within 15 months, I had two children, India and Maya. And when Maya was six months old, I decided I wanted to go back to work with Gavin's support and then it was a question of what did I want to do? And so I was very conscious of, you know, kind of I wanted to try and diversify my experience so that I worked across businesses. And I thought, what industry, what sector is going to give me that experience? And that's what took me into private investment. And I ended up in a boutique private investment group. And effectively, I kind of took like a portfolio management role. And as I was coming on to the end of that 10-year period, I had the opportunity of actually going into a CFO role in that portfolio company. And I thought, this is an opportunity for me to have an operational P&L responsibility as a CFO. And because it was a joint venture with France Telecom, which is now called Orange, 
it gave me an opportunity to demonstrate how to basically deliver value for an investee company. And you, Ed, would know that one of the success factors of private investment or private equity is your ability to exit your investment in a very profitable way. And so therein began my journey of a CFO and commercial director of Globecast, which later on would become Telstra Broadcast Services, and I'll come to that in a minute. But to add to your question about my experience in that leadership role, one of the things, because I'd already known the business, because it was in my portfolio, it was really an opportunity to how do we grow or exit the business. So the motto was fix, build, grow, exit, and the opportunity to really create value as the exit of the business was the fundamental premise of how I went into this role as a CFO. And part of that was fixing it. And fixing it meant, you know, new accounting systems. So we had SAP, Business One uh, implementation. And working in a team had to update the software. It was renegotiating major satellite and fiber contracts for television content, not just here, here in Australia, but also globally. So it was a real structural transformation role. And it was working with the CEO that the French joint venture partner had the right to appoint. So he and I basically went about charting a strategy of turning the business around and then setting it up for success and then looking for an exit. And one of the obvious partners in that exit strategy was looking at somebody who wanted to add that capability to their business. And the obvious partner was Telstra because Telstra was looking at growing their broadcast content infrastructure business. And Christine, tell me about when the exit occurred and when the business was sold to Telstra, what were the, the changes that you may have seen in the way that Telstra did things as opposed to Globecast Services? And then also, if you think about it from a leadership perspective, what potentially additional layers of leadership did you have on top of what you may have come into? And how did that potentially affect the way that you you led yourself as part of a, a senior management team or a senior leadership team? Yeah, that's a good question, Ed, and there's a, uh, I'll try and sort of truncate it down as much as I can. I think one of the things that Simon and I focused on when we were building that sort of transformation was that we felt the people and the culture of that organisation was a really important part, bringing people along on the journey of transforming this business to be a leader in its field was really important. And as we kind of were looking at the Telstra potential partnership, you know, how that business was run and the premises of profitability, profitable business, understanding your consumer, delivering the, the service that, you know, we had a 99.99% SLA, which is service level agreements in our contracts, which at the time was extremely high standard for the industry that we operated in. So our ability to deliver to our consumers, our customers, sorry, uh, in a way that was best of class on great technology in a great culture and then making sure how do we maintain that in a big organisation like Telstra when we transition. So one of the things we did was we insisted that that business remain a standalone subsidiary of Telstra rather than it being integrated into the Telstra business. And so that was 
a really important piece. And the reason why we were able to do that was it was a separate P&L. It meant that pretty much the entire unit stayed the same the way it is, even after it got acquired by Telstra. And I think to this day, if I'm correct, it still remains almost in its entirety. I think there's two or three people that have left, but the original team still exists as is. And there's additions, of course, people, you know, there's different areas of Telstra that have been brought in. But that was a fundamental part of the transaction, which is making sure that this business unit operated slightly separate as a subsidiary of Telstra. And that was really important to maintain the culture, to maintain that focus on not just top-line sales, but the profitability of the sales. One of the things private investment or private equity does, it teaches you the discipline and rigor about understanding the cost to deliver, the profitability of delivering business. And so when you when you have that razor-sharp focus and everybody in the organization understood how it worked, one of the things I did as a CFO is I spent a lot of time explaining to my team and being very transparent about how you actually build up the sales tool, how you built in CapEx and everything that you quote, how does the margins work. And by keeping that transparency, people actually understood that we couldn't afford to sell services or products at a loss. Even though the value of the sale might be really high and it might be a very lucrative contract, you know that famous phrase, it's really a strategic account, which usually means it's a loss-making account. We turned that around. We made it that it had to be strategic, but in order for it to be a successful strategic account, we had to make money as well. And so delivering value-add services became the motto in those so-called strategic accounts. So it's really about transparency, how we made money. People were able to see how the profitability of an account was. And maintaining that discipline as a team where everybody in the organization pretty much understood how that worked was such an important part of how we operated. So that was one of the key elements, Ed, when we went across to Telstra is maintaining that culture maintaining that rigor and discipline and maintaining that focus on how do we service our customers, because we were B2B mainly, to absolutely the best we could be. Yeah, look, that's really interesting and it gets us on to a whole range of other things that we're going to talk about. Christine, you mentioned at the start that you were really interested in a diversity of experience across a whole range of work areas in your formative years, really starting at McDonald's and working your way all the way through to Telstra Broadcast Services. Now, if you think about diversity, you're a big advocate of diversity. And when we spoke in the lead into this conversation, you mentioned you class yourself as somewhat of an outsider because you don't come from the traditional, if you like, Australian background, which leads you to a long and successful career in corporate Australia. So can you describe some of the challenges that you may have overcome in your career as you progressed through and up the corporate ladder And maybe what are some of the lessons that you've learned that might help others who come from similar backgrounds who may encounter those similar sorts of challenges and hurdles along the way? Yeah. And I think the the important part of my journey is that willingness to be open to different opportunities that might not follow a trajectory. So if you think about the classic, you know, CEO pathway, which I didn't follow and my career didn't follow, 
I just allowed myself to be open to different opportunities that perhaps, you know, if I did come through that traditional background of, you know, having gone to school here or university and the network and all of that classic part. So I think being open to opportunities that you might not otherwise think, oh, this might not be right for my career. I didn't really think of it like that. What I thought about was, is there an opportunity for me to learn something different, a totally new skill, exposed to different uh, experiences? And I never, it wasn't like, you know, my career path wasn't deliberate. I just chose what was the next most interesting thing I wanted to do and learn. So I just took opportunities as they came along because they interested me. You know, it was an area that I felt I really wanted to to explore. So I think having the courage to actually think about opportunities that might be outside the square in terms of they might not fit this cookie-cutter sort of uh, pathway but might be slightly different. And so so when I look at my career, I, I think when people look at my background, it's quite diverse. It's very, you know, it doesn't follow a typical sort of career trajectory. But I think that's the reason in a way that I might be that outlier candidate or the outsider candidate. But that's okay because if the companies are looking for skill sets where people are able to think differently about growth, about challenges, about people, about thinking about emerging technology and the impact on their businesses, yes, a very different mindset, then they would want to look at people like myself. And so from that perspective, I think that some of the choices I made might, might be very unusual, but I feel that it actually formed a very important part of how I think about things and perhaps I have a perspective about areas operationally because I have done those roles that are different, that gives me some empathy when I'm thinking about some of those issues when I'm, you know, as a director, when I'm sitting and, and reading some of the papers about some of the operational challenges, that perhaps I have a little bit more insight into some of those areas and roles because some of them I've done myself and they're quite different. So... I think from that perspective, I think that having that diversity and a willingness to look outside the square on what might be an unusual choice is not such a bad thing because it, it, it gives you the opportunity to be different. And, you know, I, I think it's it has served me very well. If we talk about diversity for a second, what does it mean to you? Because it means a lot of things to a lot of different people, but to you specifically, Christine, what does it mean, diversity? Ed, that's a very good question, and I think uh, a lot has been said about diversity. To me, diversity encompasses a whole lot of things. It's diversity of thought. It's diversity of age. It's diversity of skill set and experience. It's you know ethnic and cultural diversity, sexual orientation, minority groups, and yes, gender. Let's. I mean. I think it's important to highlight that gender diversity is an extremely important part and there are many who've gone before me that have fought long and hard for women to have the opportunities that I do. So I get that. But to me, the diversity is a much bigger question and, you know, I think that if you look at 
how the face of Australia has changed in the last 50 years, then I, I guess one of the challenges I have is that when you overlay that change in the face of Australia from line management right up to board in most of the organisations in Australia, unfortunately you don't see that representation of that changed face of Australia in that as you go higher up. And so for me the conversation needs to needs to encompass diversity on all those grounds, not just gender. Because if you perpetuate the same biases, you know, by you know, you've heard the you've heard the expression, I think it's something like pale, male, stale. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. But if you have pale female stale, it's the same thing, right? So, you know, I'm talking about the same principles of bias exists if you apply those biases, you know, in gender. So my point is that you need to think broadly about this. And so for me, gender uh, diversity is about all of those things. And when you look around the room and you see something, you know, that doesn't represent your consumer, your demographic, the sectors in which you operate, the people that you deal with, then you've got to ask yourself how relevant are you as a leadership team and as a board? It's a really, I mean, we could literally spend the next three or four hours talking about this very topic. Unfortunately, we simply don't have the time, but I want to move on to a love of your life, a love affair that started clearly with your father and his love of Australian cricket team and a prime minister who drank beer and wore shorts. Um, (laughs) Talk to me about your love affair with the game of cricket because you're heavily involved in cricket. You're on the board of the ICC Tweet 20 World Cup you're on the board now of the and a director of the Bradman Foundation. So describe what cricket means to you, Christine, but also I want you to talk to me about how you felt when you sat in a crowd where I was in as well on the 8th of March last year uh, when the female Australian cricket team, T20 team, took on the Indian T20 team uh, in front of over 86,000 people at the MCG. That must have been one hell of a night for you. Yeah, Ed, this is a this is a very special topic, and my love for cricket started when I I can't even remember actually, to be honest. I think the first time I went to a cricket game, I was six. My dad took me to the Vankade st- Stadium in Mumbai, which is the famous cricket stadium. I think it was India versus the West Indies. I think, and um, I, it was just I think it was one of the happiest days of my life. But I played cricket uh, usually in an all boys team in the laneway between the buildings that I where I lived in and I think I was 11 when there was nowhere else for me to play because the boys wouldn't let me play in an all boys team and you know at the time in 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 India there wasn't really a pathway for girls to play and my school didn't offer cricket as a sport so there ended my playing but I followed the love of the game ever since and I remember actually feigning illness for example on the famous tight test on that final day between India and Australia and, and Chennai on Madras. And I remember, you know, I think it was the only, one of the only few sick days I've ever had in my school career, a school, schooling life. And boy, wasn't that worth it. I mean, it was one of the most special test matches I've ever been part of, but I, I then watched. So, and then of course, India winning, winning the World Cup in 1983 was a pivotal moment in cementing that love 
and deciding to come to Australia. And I always promised myself that one day when I'm in a position that I could, because I couldn't play the game, that I would try somehow to contribute. So the first opportunity came when I was approached about joining the Bradman Foundation, which was, you know, such a privilege. I mean, depending on what you believe and what you think, uh, there are various views on it, but Bradman was one of the greatest Australian who, who ever lived. And I remember Dad relentlessly talking about the statistics of Bradman and saying to me that it is the most extraordinary stats of any sport of any kind of any human being ever. And so to be asked to be on that foundation and, and be part of that organisation was pretty special. Um, and then a year later, I was asked to consider an opportunity for the T20 World Cup, which was going to be two World Cup, the women's and the men's. And the key driver for me was that for the first time in Australia, there was going to be a women's standalone World Cup. And that was, I, I'm shamelessly admitting that that was my main motivation. And I remember ringing my father in, I think it was December 2017 when I was appointed and ringing him and telling him about it. In fact, when I, when I got appointed to the Badman Foundation Board, you know, he was in tears. He, he was so moved. And then when I was appointed to the T20 World Cup, he said, this is the greatest service you're ever going to do for your nation. And I remember saying to Dad, Dad, I'm not joining the army, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joining a cricket board. But that's how much it meant to him. Uh, and he was just over the moon. He just said, uh, you know, darling, that's the best That's the best news. Sadly, he um, the day before the final, I spoke to Dad and he said, Australia will win. I said, Dad, what do you mean? I said, it's, you know, hopefully it's a good game. And, you know, India, he said, no, no, darling, Australia's going to win. And he said, uh, I wish I could be there because he had been in Australia for a three-month period over the 2015 World Cup and went to many games, thanks to my brother-in-law and my sister who, who took him to a few games, which he loved. And uh, so, Ed, that day will be etched in my memory for as long as I live. I'll take it to my grave as being one of the highlights of my professional career and personal because I think there were many doubters, you know, whether we could fill that stadium. Uh, and I think, in fact, a couple of people said to me, oh, you'll be lucky to get 25,000. Well, I've got a feeling as we sit here now towards the early part of November in 2021 that that crowd is still the largest crowd since that day at the MCG. I think so. And, yes, it is. And, I mean, I think that that's a testament to a couple of things. One is is simply the fact that women's sport across the board, not just cricket, but women's sport is really now starting to take hold across this country and around the world. And being a father of three daughters, that is something that is is very, very dear to my heart. And being in that crowd with one of my daughters who plays cricket was just something that I'll never forget as well. And, I, and, and like you, Christine, I've been fortunate enough to go to lots of different events over the course of my life, and it was a, it was just extraordinary. Now, we've got a few more quick things to get to before we wrap things up. I want you to talk about organisational alignment for a minute because one of the things which an executive team needs to be is be on the same page when it comes to the things that they need to do to execute a strategy for an organisation to be successful. And when you're sitting on a boardroom 
or in a board or on a board, you need to also have a very clear understanding of what each of the board members are viewing from the perspective of the strategy that's going to be executed by the management team that you will oversee and that everybody needs to be on the same page with that. So can you talk to me a little bit about your views on organisational and team alignment and how important you believe it is with respect to companies being successful? Oh, I think, you know, I think that's fundamental. And, you know, Ed, let me take it back from that for one minute. I think as humans, by our very nature, we, we seek clarity in purpose. And I think if the values and beliefs and the purpose of the organisation are clearly articulated across the organisation by the board, by the senior leadership, by the CEO, and that alignment is linked to that the singularity, the purpose, that alignment is extremely important because if you're not aligned, then there's a mismatch in expectations, then there's a mismatch in how resources are allocated, there's a mismatch in outcomes. So, you know, I think one of the signs of good leadership or great leadership is our ability to connect people to that purpose, align as a team, and then work together to deliver those outcomes because I can't imagine how you would do it otherwise because if this, that, that sense of connection of purpose and everyone being, it's not about all of us being the same, it's all of us understanding the clarity in the strategy, the clarity in the operating model and the clarity in what resources that we have to deliver that. And that is where sometimes what I've seen is is lacking in organisations. So, you know, when I join boards or when I'm talking to companies about developing or, you know, working through their strategy, it is about defining that purpose, being very clear about the strategy, being very clear about the, the operating plan and the people, the resources that you need to deliver that. And having that alignment up front and that rechecking on a regular basis is extremely important. And, you know, the, the rechecking is something that's come through as a theme through every conversation that we've had on the Speak Up podcast is that people need to understand that alignment is not static. Alignment is something that needs to be checked regularly to ensure people are on the same page in order to do the things that they need to do to deliver a strategy and deliver an outcome for a company. And I think one of the interesting things, Christine, from my perspective is that it's really important that everybody knows their role. What's the role that they're playing? And I mean, you can put it, you know, from a cricket team with respect to batting, bowling, fielding and the roles that the people are playing, it's no different in business. And if you can seek role clarification and people know exactly what they're doing and how that contributes to the broader success of a company or the success of a strategy, I think it, it, it all goes well for providing the ability to actually succeed because if you're not aligned and you're not of an understanding of your role, it's going to be very difficult to do that. Can you talk to me very quickly about, we don't need to talk about names of businesses here, but has there been any boards that you've been on over the course of your career where they haven't been aligned? And, and if that is the case, what are some of the outcomes or what are some of the conversations that might go around the board table, which may be difficult conversations to have, which is hopefully going to get everybody back on the same page? Yeah. And I think if you think about what directors do around the board table, one of the most important things we do as, as a board is make decisions. And in order to make decisions, you have to have the information to the, to the extent 
possible to help you make those decisions. And sometimes it's not, you know, there are challenging issues that you have to deal with uh, and different people, you might have all the same information, but different people have different perspectives on how you deal with the issue. When there isn't alignment, it's not that the outcome is disastrous. It just means that it's harder to get to the ultimate decision and that the outcome might be challenging as well uh, in terms of, you know, something that should take X number of, you know, a period for change might take longer because of that misalignment. And so, therefore, you lose valuable time. You know, remember in the public domain, you are custodians of the shareholder capital. And so the longer the misalignment, the greater the destruction of shareholder value. And sometimes it manifests itself, Ed, not now, not tomorrow, not in six months' time, but it might manifest in a few years' time. And look, that's a really interesting point. And it's just, it's, you're so right because, you know, the biggest issues that we see from not being aligned really covers one of your points earlier, which is about the allocation of resources. And we both know that the allocation of resources, if they're incorrect, won't have an impact immediately, but eventually it will. And that's going to create value destruction, which, you know, we both know it takes a long, long time for that to recover. Christine, we're going to change gears here for a second, because one of the things that that we do on this podcast is give our guests the opportunity to tell our listeners some of the things that they're doing that may be related to what they do from a work perspective, but also some of the things that they might be doing outside of work to relax and enjoy themselves. So tell me this, or tell our listeners this, what are you reading, watching, and listening to at the moment? Oh, this is one of my favourite parts of the conversation. So I've actually just finished a book. It's one of the most extraordinary books that I've read. It's called Contrarian, and it's the story of Peter Thiel, which Peter Thiel is one of the most successful Silicon Valley investors, you know, one of the founding investors in Facebook and PayPal and all the, you know, companies. It's it's written by a guy called Max Chafkin. It's an extraordinary book. I I definitely, it's called The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. And in a nutshell, it's a wonderful manifestation or articulation, I should say, of power, money and success and what people do with that and how Silicon Valley has played a role in using those cards in politics, in education and with people's lives because of the kind of, you know, businesses that they've built. So that's what I've just finished. And Now, we've obviously, you're in Sydney and, you you know, you've had a couple of months of lockdown fairly recently. Any Netflix shows come to mind or even new albums that you've been listening to where you've had on high rotation as a result of being stuck at home? Well, actually, I'll talk about the music because I have actually had a a moment of nostalgia and uh, I've had a Paul Simon moment over the last few months and, you know, Simon Art Garfunkel albums and I have suddenly been obsessed with Graceland. So I've read all the interviews on how Graceland, and I, by the way, I've seen this years ago, but I just went through that stage. And it, it came about because I was looking at some notes I'd made about, you know, going through some old boxes at home. 
and found one of my notes talking about reminding myself how much my mother loved the Sound of Silence album. So, of course, in the last, you know, couple of months, I've been, I've had that on sort of shuffle, replay support, you know, Graceland's, all of kind of Simon and Garfunkel albums, live acoustic versions. And you would have seen Paul Simon played at the uh, Ground Zero at the 20th anniversary of, uh, of the September 11, which was quite extraordinary. I don't know if you saw it, but it was, so I, I've got, I'm going through that kind of stage and I'm also going through the 80s. I, it, on my playlist yesterday was 1986. So I was listening to all the, all the songs, the number one songs in 1986. And I don't want to embarrass myself, but you know, there are a few. There's Madonna, there's Youth Mix, there's uh, David Bowie. There's a few of my favourites in there. But well, So that's what I'm listening to. Well, let's, let's face it, th- those sorts of nostalgic albums and songs, th- they're the story of our lives. They're a soundtrack to our lives in there. And Absolutely. I think, and I'm sure many of our listeners will, will appreciate that. Christine, we've got two final questions and you've been very, very generous with your time this afternoon, so thank you so much. But can you describe what you would consider to be the biggest challenges leaders face today and do you think that leaders of today are equipped to manage through these challenges? Yeah, I think, you know, what COVID has taught us, Ed, is um, how do we manage, how do we lead through a period of uncertainty? How do we manage through a period of really understanding, having a grasp of the impact of technology on our business? And I don't mean this as a flippant kind of, yeah, technology on impact on our business. Genuinely, like if you think about how quickly we've had to pivot in the last 12 months, you know, doing completely transitioning to virtual meetings and board meetings. Would you have ever believed five years ago that we would completely transition to virtual board meetings and make material decisions about companies virtually because we've had a pandemic? So, you know, our ability to really learn from this and understand how we're going to manage through ambiguity and, you know, disruption is going to be really important. And also, how do we manage the talent of the future? You know, I think that's going to be one of our biggest challenges is the workforce, as we know it, will have very different expectations post-COVID. And organisations that are able to answer that, this is where, Ed, the clarity of purpose the clarity of the strategy and the clarity of what your expectations are from your people has never been more important because guess what? If you have that, organisations are able to manage their workforce remotely much better than those that don't because why? They're going to expect their people back into the office. By the way, I'm not suggesting going back into the office is a bad thing. In fact, it's an absolute necessity but what I'm talking about is that the way we work in the future is going to change. And so our ability to be agile and see and really understand that the talent of the future is going to expect very different things from us as boards and leaders. And so our ability to manage through that is going to be very important. That's a great answer. And, it, you know, you're so right. It's incredible to think that so many things have changed so rapidly and you would argue that well, hopefully we look back in 15 or 20 or 50 years' time and people will see COVID as being 
an incredibly disruptive time of our lives from a personal point of view, but an incredibly transformative part of our lives when it comes to the way businesses do business and the way we engage, transact and do business together, which I think is going to be something that we'll look back on probably with uh, with wide eyes as we continue to grow and evolve as individuals. But Christine, the last question, I ask this question of every one of my guests and we ask you now to reflect a little bit on, on your journey and, and your experiences. So can you describe what you've learned about leadership and alignment that you wished you'd known when you were starting your career? <laughs> one of my favourite sayings is by um, Abraham Lincoln. I think he said something like, you cannot escape the responsibility of tomorrow by evading it today. And I think one of the things I learned, one of the tough lessons I learned from leadership is, you know, if it's meant to be done now, do it now. Because the longer you leave it, the less effective it becomes. If you think about that saying, it can be applied to so many things. And I've, I've learned some pretty tough lessons when, you know, I've deferred decisions that I wish now in hindsight I had have, I have made them a lot earlier. And I can't sum it up better than what Lincoln said. In fact, that was the book I read before and I highly recommend it. It's Lincoln's biography because he talks about, you know, there are, as leaders, we have a responsibility to not evade the decisions that we should make now. Christine Holman, it's been wonderful to see you on Zoom. It's uh, so terrific to speak with you and I look forward to catching up with you again in the not too distant future, hopefully face to face. Me too, Ed. I can't wait.